guys welcome back to but what's next with me michelle reed i am so unbelievably excited for this episode because actually you know what i say that in every single episode but i seriously mean it this time because this is a person who in college i kind of had the idea that i wanted to do the podcast didn't actually think it would happen you know for real but here we are But I always thought to myself, you know, this is a person who I would love to have on a podcast because he is just such a great teacher for one and is so talented and smart and thoughtful about the way that he educates his students. He is a professor who I had while I was at the King's College. His name is Professor Brian Brenberg. I just learned so much in his classes. I specifically took, I think, two different classes from him. The first one was business communications, which is primarily what he's going to be talking about today in this episode but I also took an innovation technology and the economy course in in college he is the executive vice president and chair of the program in business and finance at the king's college and he also speaks on different news shows so he's spoken on cnbc yahoo finance he's a regular contributor to a lot of different stations so he is very skilled in the area of public speaking which is Something that we, I feel like, are all really nervous about and scared about. And I remember it was my sophomore year of college when I actually took his business communications class. And this class mainly talked about how to present in front of a crowd, how to give a presentation without using um or like, which has been very useful for this podcast because I've noticed I say like a little bit too much. But It really did a good job of showing, you know, how do you actually present well in front of other people? How do you put together a speech for an audience? How do you be confident in the words that you're saying? And I just felt like this was the first time in my life where I had really sat in a class and gained practical wisdom about, you know, a necessary skill I could use in my career. Public speaking was the main thing I felt like I learned from his courses, but he also taught a lot about how to make sure your resume is applicable for the job that you're going for, how to nail an interview for our midterm for this class or the final, I don't quite remember. It was literally a fake job interview with him and it was so nerve-wracking, but it really did prepare me for applying for jobs and interviewing for jobs and, you know, How do I make sure that my resume is curated and clean and grammar looks good and just all these things that I feel like you know as someone who is applying for jobs that needs to be in order, but no one actually tells you, you know, how to do it. It's kind of like personal finances. I feel like you're like, okay, yeah, I know that these need to be in check, but you don't actually have the skills to make them in check. And so I was so thankful to take his course because I just felt like it was so practical and so useful and For me personally, in my videos, I share a lot of the insight that I learned from him specifically and like public speaking and just kind of like resumes and applying for jobs. But I think it's so much more useful to actually hear it from him because he is very skilled at everything and knows exactly what he's talking about far more than I do. So just wanted to intro him. I'm so excited for this. I really hope you guys enjoy it. Let me know if you do. Feel free to write a review. Check out the show notes for his information as well as mine. And let's get into it. So I'm so excited for today because I have my old professor, Professor Brenberg, here on the podcast. Thank you so much for being on today. You, you bet. I feel like you emphasized old just a little bit too much Oh, there. yeah. <laughs> it was only about a year ago, I'd say, but I'm so excited. I've already introed him, so we're just going to go ahead and go straight into the topics that we have planned for today. The first question I wanted to ask you, and this is 
a question I'm going to ask everyone who's on the podcast, and that's what is one thing you tell your 22-year-old mm. self if you could go back? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, there's probably a couple things mm. I would tell my 22-year-old self. It would be, wouldn't it be amazing to, well, you don't know this yet, but wouldn't yeah. it be amazing to meet your 22-year-old self and actually get a chance yeah. to have a conversation? But I think there's two things that come to my mind. One is I would really, I would tell my 22-year-old self to, to value relationships more than accolades. When I was 22, I was so focused on, I was so goal oriented, Mm. so achievement oriented. And I really measured, you know, how I was doing what I was doing based on, you know, achievements that I, that I accomplished or things that I, you know, things you can put on a resume. It's very resume oriented. And I was not relationship oriented. And so a lot of the relationships I had with friends from college, Mm. with family, with high school connections, with colleagues, were very Mm. secondary to me. And as I've gotten older, what I've realized is relationships not only actually matter more for Mm. what you're going to do in the world, but they're way more satisfying than, you know, resume accomplishments. And so one thing I would say is to myself is – invest more heavily in the relationships you have and, and not so much in checking a box or, or getting an achievement. The other thing I'd say to my 22-year-old mm. self is, you know, your worth and value has is nothing to do with what you accomplish. Yeah. You know, it's kind of related to the first one, but mm. the idea of what are you loved for, mm-hmm. I was convinced that what made you valuable was what you got done in the eyes of others and, mm. and how they viewed you. And what I've come to see is that love is actually detached from what you accomplish. You're loved. I'm loved. I mean, I ultimately believe I'm loved by God, mm-hmm. not because of anything I do, but because he chose to love me. And yeah. and that is such a freeing thought. Mm-hmm. And it actually enables you to do more if you don't feel like you're always trying to earn someone's love. Yeah. So. 22-year-old Brian (laughs) could really (laughs) use that lesson. Quit focusing on your resume virtues so much and understand you're loved because God or people around you choose to love you because they love you. Mm -hmm. And you're therefore free to be whoever you were made to be, not conform to some external standard. Yeah, Yeah, and I think that's really important, especially living in New York City where, you know, you're always told that your accomplishments are like what makes you valuable and what makes you good in the eyes of others. And so... I don't think you hear a lot of people say that like relationships are important. Mm. And so I definitely feel like that's really good insight. And then for the next one, what is one skill you think is important to have when starting your career that no one really talks about? It can be something that people do talk about that you do feel is important. But I found for me, a lot of the advice I got was so generic. Like Mm. You should network and things like that. But what do you think? Maybe for your first job specifically, what a good skill is. Yeah, you know, it's 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 kind of an interesting question because you think about skill and you often go to like a hard skill. You know, you need mm-hmm. to know how to program in a certain language or you know need to know how to model cash flows mm-hmm. or you need to know how, whatever. I mean, and I think in your first job, those are important things, mm-hmm. but they're the things you're actually going to have to get in a lot of ways on the job. You're, you're just not going to walk out of your educational background mm-hmm. knowing those things. Uh, the thing that mattered most for me, this I'm afraid this is going to run afoul of what you just said about generic yeah. advice. So I'm <laughs> going to have to say it, and I don't know if you're Go going to like it. it. 
But the thing that mattered, so I just a minute ago talked about, you know, how important relationship building yeah. is. And I think the thing that I observed mattered the most for me in my mm-hmm. first job was those moments when I was willing to get out of my comfort zone mm-hmm. and approach somebody I don't know and say, yeah. can I can I have 15 minutes of your time mm-hmm. to learn about what you do and yeah. just briefly tell you a little bit about who I am? And, you know, it's not... It wasn't, it really wasn't a function of networking. Mm -hmm. It was actually more about discovery. Mm -hmm. You know, I think the way that you find your place in the world, in the marketplace, Mm -hmm. isn't isn't because you sit down and you kind of rationally think out the future and you say, here's where I'm going. I've got it figured out. I mean, that is the Mm -hmm. most distressing thing in the world when you try to do that. And I meet so many young people who are like, I I gotta figure out where I'm going. I gotta have my vision. And I think that is, I think that's really a losing proposition. It's so stressful. So instead, I think it's much more effective for people to uh, think in terms of discovery. Mm-hmm. And part of that is you've got to go meet people in the world mm-hmm. doing things and ask, like, what do you do? How did you get mm-hmm. here? And so th- it, I don't know if you call that a skill. It's more of like a, like, it, it's like a almost a characteristic. Like you're courageous. Yeah. But um, I think in in a world that tends to be more mediated, you know, by screens, by technology, the willingness to to approach somebody face to face and learn from them about how they got to where they got is incredibly valuable. And it orients you more quickly than your own thinking could about where you might fit in the world yeah and I do appreciate the focus on the soft skills and I think that's something you really talked about in your classes that I was in it was never the technical skills weren't necessarily the most important thing and yeah they are important depending on the job but I really appreciated how you did talk about you know reaching Mm -hmm. out to people and like being very intentional about relationships and then just especially with the interviews how you really focused on mm. like storytelling and yeah. you know being a good listener things that I feel like people don't necessarily mention when they say this is like career advice for people but well it, it, you know and it's interesting you say that I mean even as we sit here mm-hmm. and you you know you you've learned a set of skills that allow you to do this I mean we're sitting yeah. in front of microphones we're you know there, there's a certain mm-hmm. set of technical skills you need to put this podcast together mm-hmm. but the you learn that as you needed to. But the yeah. thing that makes it work is the fact that you have a curiosity. You're asking mm-hmm. questions. You're, you're sitting with somebody, having a conversation, mm-hmm. trying to draw out their story. That's a, yeah. you know, that's a soft skill thing. But that's what makes this valuable, not the fact that you know how to do it. Yeah. But the fact that you're willing to ask the questions and listen to the answers. Yeah, for sure. And I think we're just going to segue into the next yeah. topics because... I feel like those two are really good. Okay, so the first question I'm also I'm pretty sure going to ask everyone, but it is, what was your first job? <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard what where you started. I feel yeah. like I know where you are now, sure. but but um, so I'll give you there's there's two answers to that the, mm. my first actual job, forget mm. about post college job, was I worked in a video store okay. in high school. Actually, I think I started maybe even in in junior high. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, this is back in the early 90s when it was VHS. T- I, oh, wow. I don't know how many of your listeners have even watched a VHS tape before, mm-hmm. but it was, now I'm starting to sound like a really old professor. <laughs> uh, 
Um, but my, my friend had a video store. So I, I was like the guy behind the counter rewinding, vid, you know, be kind, rewind. Like those were those days. Um, so I worked in a video store in high school, which was actually it was a ton of fun because it was like back then that was a hub in a community. So people would come in on like everybody would go there on the weekends to get a movie when they're hanging out with their friends. So it was like a place where everybody intersected. So it was kind of fun. But my first job after college was in finance with an insurance company called Travelers. That's actually the, up on the wall, I've got the red, that's from like a 60s Life magazine. I have my renter's insurance. The red. (laughs) (laughs) So I worked for them uh, coming out of college and I didn't have any, you know, it wasn't like I was aiming for insurance Mm -hmm. when I was in, nobody's aiming for insurance when they're in college. But, you know, it's, it's actually one of those industries where nobody thinks about it except when they need to buy it for their Mm -hmm. car or renter's insurance. But it's, huge it's pervasive and if you think about it everybody in america in some way or another relies on insurance you know in multiple areas of their life that's how we manage risk so anyway i didn't want to be in insurance necessarily but there was an opportunity there it was a good opportunity for me i was had a finance background Mm -hmm. and um so i went to work in insurance and it was it was an amazing experience Mm -hmm. uh you know we can delve into it if you want to but it was a stretching experience for me. I got a little bit of international experience out of it. I got to work for some amazing individuals who really pushed me to, to think more deeply about what it means mm-hmm. to be a professional. And um, it's amazing what you can learn sometimes in a space you never yeah. expected to be in. Yeah, no, for sure. And what do you feel like were, I asked someone else this and I thought it was really interesting, but what's something that going into the job you kind of expected mm-hmm. from it that wasn't actually there or kind of like a harsh reality that you experienced in your first job. I remember, uh, I distinctly remember sitting there my first week of work Mm -hmm. at my, in my cubicle. And, you know, I was, I was a good student in college, got Mm -hmm. good grades, studied finance, Mm -hmm. learned a lot. It was a good education. But when I got there and I, I sat down in that first group that I worked in, I just remember the overwhelming feeling of, everybody here is so much smarter than I am. And, and they were smart. They were really good professionals. I, I, I misjudged that a little bit. It wasn't a matter of smarts. It was a matter of what they had learned in their careers. I mean, they'd been Mm -hmm. on in their careers for five, 10, 15, 20 years, some of them. And there's a lot you learn on the job. And so I kind of had this expectation coming out of college I'm a finance guy. I took all this coursework. I know Mm -hmm. my stuff. I'm going to walk right in and yeah. change the world in this company. What I realized is I have so much to learn and these yeah. people have learned it and I've got to humble myself. And so that kind of humility thing, mm-hmm. coming out of college and you get the diploma, sometimes humility isn't the thing on the front of your yeah. mind. And I got into the workplace <laughs> and I was like, I, these, I got to learn from you guys. You, you, yeah. And so I got to kind of sit at your feet, understand what you do. And that was part of the, that was part of the, you know, get to know mm-hmm. people thing that really yeah. made a difference. Yeah, because I feel like for me in my first job, I definitely felt that lack of confidence on the first day where you walk in and you're like, everyone around me knows so much more than I do. And I'd ask because I feel that sometimes people recommend, you know, the whole fake it till you make it mantra. You would say it'd be better just to be humble and to kind of not subject yourself to the wisdom of other people, but just really try to learn from others instead yeah. of kind of faking that confidence. Yeah, I'm not a big, I, I'm actually not at all a mm-hmm. fan of 
the fake it idea. In mm. fact, I, and this is something we talk about in my class a little. I teach this presentations mm. and communication class, and it's about resumes and it's about interviewing. And some people think, you know, the the, the purpose of this class is to teach people how to fake it, how to mm. exude confidence that they don't have. And yeah. and I, what I really try to tell students, and I hope it gets through, is that's totally antithetical to mm. what I'm trying to do. I'm actually trying to help people authentically communicate Mm -hmm. what they hope to do, what they like to do, what they have done, so that they can create relationships with other people that can be mutually beneficial. I mean, it's really about authentically and compellingly representing Mm -hmm. what you can do. So yeah, the idea of fake it till you make it is a disaster when it comes to learning because then you don't ask good questions and you don't listen to people and you're always trying to talk Mm -hmm. instead of hearing what others can offer to you. So uh, yes, I... Don't fake it till you make it. Mm. Work hard. Put your best foot forward. But always be willing to. And look, people, I mean, acknowledge. Mm. the you know, like. Tell somebody, I really respect the knowledge you have and the mm. skills you've developed. And I, I really feel like I could benefit by just learning from you. Would you be willing to show me how you think about this or how you do this? Mm. That, there's no faster way to ingratiate yourself to someone yeah. than to have that temperament. Yeah. And going off that, how do you feel like is a good way for people who are maybe in their like early 20s to find the career that is meant for them? I feel like people always talk about career as if there's one yeah. path. Yeah. And I think one thing that I learned is it's okay to take a job that isn't necessarily the one, yeah. you know, yeah. and to kind of use it as a stepping stone to get somewhere. So how do you recommend kind of going about navigating your career path? Yeah, I I think that's uh, a really important question because there is a lot of, I think young people, I certainly felt that I think maybe even more today, people feel this Mm. intense pressure to find the right job Mm. right now where they can feel totally like they're making a difference in the world, where they're, Mm. they're creating a lifestyle that they've always dreamed of. And, you know, your career does have a path but it's mm-hmm. it's a path probably through all sorts of terrain that you, you mm-hmm. and you don't anticipate where that terrain what it's going to look like and where it's going to go. I have it's not it's not on my bookshelf right now, but normally I have a book sitting right at eye level mm-hmm. and this uh, spot that says it's a book called Just Do Something, mm-hmm. and it's kind of a counter to this idea that I've got to figure out ahead of time and really map out my career path so I can mm-hmm. follow that plan. And I find for a lot of people that process is so paralyzing for them because they can't see the future, which means it's very hard to map it out. Mm -hmm. And so there's this constant, like, I don't know if I'm pursuing the right thing. Should I do this, that? Mm -hmm. And my advice usually is go. Put a stake in the ground somewhere. If something presents itself and it seems interesting, try it. Mm -hmm. And if it's, you know, and get the feedback from doing the job. And if it's not quite right, then stick your head up and look around Mm. and say, well, what does feel more right now that I've learned what this job's about? Mm. So I view it as, you know, I think people should have a much more experimental approach to their career than a five-year, 10-year planning approach. And it, but that takes a little bit of, like, you've got to be comfortable with ambiguity to Mm. do that. You know, not, and it's hard when people ask you, the, the biggest impediment, I think, to career, good career thinking is the fact that people ask you what you want to do yeah. and you feel the pressure to have a socially acceptable answer. Yeah. And so that's why everybody says I'm going to law school because nobody mm. ever critiques <laughs> you for saying you're going to law school. Like, oh, good for you, Johnny. You're going to – but you you don't even know what lawyers do, yeah. you know? So if you can fight the social pressure to have an answer, mm. you actually give your, 
yourself the space to think about what mm. might be a good first step. Yeah, and I appreciate it. I remember in one class you mentioned how so many people kind of jump into grad school right after yeah. college, and maybe this is more just for business students, but you mentioned how it's a good idea to kind of go and get some work experience beforehand because I have so many friends who they just jump into grad school and get all of this like student debt when they don't even know what they want to do, but they're just scared to go out there and try something. And so I definitely think it's important to just try something and just do something. Yeah, I mean, figure out why you would want to go to grad school. Go out in the world and see where that kind of knowledge or background is really valued. And then go back and get the degree. But racking up that kind of debt is so dangerous. It actually constrains you. It it limits your options because now i got to go take a job that can pay off the debt instead of taking a job doing the thing that I wanted to do. Yeah, yeah. So let's say you are interviewing for your first job. Yeah. What are some tips that you have for standing out in an interview? Yeah, so I think the first thing is don't try to stand out yeah. by <laughs> trying to stand out. Yeah. <laughs> that's, the, that's like the fake it till you make it thing. Mm. The th- I, I, I was thinking of this the other day. I've probably interviewed a thousand young people over the course of the last 11 years, maybe just just shy of a thousand mm-hmm. people. So I've seen a lot of 20, 22 year olds do interview. I've interviewed them myself. And so mm-hmm. I've seen some interesting patterns. And the one that sticks out the most to me is, it's it sounds very simple, but the thing that a lot of people have trouble doing is, is articulating clearly why they're interested in mm-hmm. being in this interview for this mm-hmm. job today. Like, why are you here? And so my counsel to somebody interviewing for a job is think deeply about why you're interested in this company, this organization, Mm -hmm. their products, their services. Why does your background make you interested in that? Mm -hmm. There's, there's a story there and it's, and it's, it's a story that is specific. It it relates to specific things. Like I love (laughs) the way that you design or the way that you market or I love the way that you talk about who you are or I love I love the way you think about how you serve customers you know I, you, there's something you love that you like that you're interested in about that company and there's something in your background that causes you to have that feeling the interview is about connecting those two things when you connect those two things then the interviewer says Oh, yeah, I can totally see why you're here. And I can totally see how you might be helpful mm-hmm. to us. And I want to work with somebody like that, mm-hmm. right? But that that bridge, that connection is so often not drawn out by a candidate yeah. because I- instead of thinking about that, the candidate just says, well, I got I to gotta answer every question. I got to check the box. Yeah. And as a result, there's no narrative. There's no story. Mm-hmm. And it's stories that we find compelling. Those are the things that move us. So in some ways, you should think about your interview as trying to create a story Mm -hmm. for the person hearing it. Yeah, and I feel that sometimes people feel that in an interview they just need to talk about their skills, but there's never that context of like, why are these skills important for the actual company that I'm going for? And so I kind of like the emphasis on focusing on the company rather than you as a candidate because I feel oftentimes we always feel that it's about us whenever we're interviewing. It, yeah. And it's like, it's really, it is a, to a certain extent, but 
not fully. It's mostly about the company that you're going for. That's such a good point that there's a, you know, it's both. It's you and the mm. company. But the balance I see so often is people are thinking a lot about themselves and they have not thought a lot about the company. Yeah. But you're you're talking to the company. Like they want to know about they want to know what you know about them. Mm. They they want to they want to believe that they're special in your eyes, which is why you're here. Yeah. So if you can do that, you instantly stand out yeah. compared to most of the candidates that you're going to you're going to be competing with for the job. Yeah. And kind of even before that step, I guess, what are some tips that you have for people who are crafting their resume? What are big do's and don'ts mm-hmm. that you see when you're like sifting through a stack? Yeah, well, the biggest don't is uh, y- you can't make stupid errors. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, this is going to sound, yeah. but I, I just cannot tell you how many resumes. Look, people who read resumes, they do this all day long, which means mm-hmm. like any of us who do something all day long, we develop pet peeves. Yep. When they see a resume come across their desk and mm-hmm. there is a misspelling, there's a grammar error, there's a formatting thing that's clearly not right. They mm-hmm. just, they say, I can't believe that you'd waste my time. Yeah. This is a resume. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like this is the one moment for you to get it right. So yeah. I would say have the humility to ask somebody in your life who's way more mm-hmm. detail-oriented than you are and way more mm-hmm. of a nitpicker and say, will you please tear this thing apart yeah. so that my inner, the person reading it at the job I want doesn't toss it in the wastebasket. Yeah. So that's the don't do. Uh, the do is, again, you have this, um, okay, here's the do for the resumes. Mm-hmm. Too many resumes are focused on things you've done, not things mm-hmm. you've accomplished. So it'll say, I, you know, I was in this job and I, you know, I went to meetings or I had to open and close the shop or I had to serve customers drinks or I had to create slide decks or something. Mm. And that's true. You did all those things. But the point for somebody interviewing you is, well, what was the result? Like, why did it matter that you did it? You know, the question you can't ask yourself enough in life is, why does this matter? So when you're doing a resume, you look at every one of your bullet points and say, why does this matter? Why does it matter Mm. that I did this? And that'll lead you to articulate what you did in terms of an outcome. Mm. I created something because we needed to serve a customer um, and the result was, you know, we got three new accounts or something like that. Mm. But what's the, so think in terms of results, think in terms of meaning, don't simply think in terms of inputs, Yeah. right? Activity, think in terms of outputs, yeah. outcomes. Yeah. Again, you do that and your resume is going to sound really different mm. compared to the others that are in the same stack with mm. you. And what are your opinions on making your resume more artsy, if you will? (laughs) Because something that I didn't realize, a lot of my friends in my first job, which was in marketing, so it's a little bit more of like a trendy kind of industry, but all their resumes were so like crafty and pretty. And uh-huh. I remember being in your class and it was, this is the format <laughs> and this. And I just, I felt so silly with my resume, but then yeah. I was thinking about it. And I always liked that. I always yeah. liked having just a clean format. But yeah. do you think it's okay to change your resume yeah. format depending on the industry? So my, so here's the, the, the answer always, and I'm glad you asked this because I've actually been thinking about this. The answer always in communication is know your audience. Mm-hmm. And a resume is a form of communication. So, you know, norms change in industry, standards change. And in some spaces today, it might be the case that the design elements of your resume are very, they strongly communicate something about Mm -hmm. your intentions and your abilities. So what I always tell students is, I'm going to tell you 
some of the basic things a resume should have. Mm-hmm. But the thing you always need to do is is know the industry space you're going into and find out from people in that space, yeah. what are they looking for? What does this company look for? Yeah. And I think in, in, in marketing, in a design role, mm-hmm. that kind of the design elements in a mm-hmm. resume could be really appropriate. But I, mm-hmm. but I also caution students, like there's a fine line between uh, really good design and gimmicks, especially for young people. And it's really easy when you start adding color or other design elements Mm -hmm. to a resume for it to look really gimmicky, especially when you're young, because look, you just face, people are going to be sometimes biased to view you as an amateur. Mm -hmm. And don't be careful about doing things that could be interpreted as amateurish. So I think that's a little bit of both. It's Respect the industry, do what mm. people there expect, but also be mindful of the fact that if you're getting cutesy, mm. you're likely, you haven't, I've said this in class many times, you, in your career, you earn the right to be eccentric. Yeah. When you're young, you haven't earned that. that right with people. So just show that you're a professional, show that you know how to do it right. And once you've done that and built a career, now you get to set the standards. Now you can be the, the trendsetter, but earn that. Mm. Don't expect it yeah. right away. And how do you feel is the best way to get over being nervous when you're applying for jobs and interviewing for jobs? You know what? I I don't think there's any substitute. I think it's the same for almost anything in life, which is the more you do it, the less nervous you are. You know, you're a gymnast. You're on a balance beam in front of an audience. It just it gets easier the more you're on the beam in front of people. Uh, you shoot free throws in a big basketball game, the more you do it. And, and it's the same with interviewing. It, you actually just need the reps. You're always going to be nervous, and that's good because mm-hmm. nerves are respect. Nerves are the respect you pay your audience. You mm-hmm. care about the audience. That's why you're nervous to talk to them. So that's okay. Mm-hmm. I never, You never lose that. I'm always nervous mm-hmm. uh, when I'm doing something like that. But the more you do it, the more you learn how to channel those nerves productively. Mm-hmm. So I don't think for somebody who's just new to the job market, you can't do enough practice interviewing. Mm-hmm. Apply for jobs. You may or may not love that much, but just do it for the yeah. pure reps, informational interviewing, meeting people to learn about their background. Mm-hmm. So incredibly helpful to learn how to have a productive one-on-one conversation, which is what an interview is. Yeah. It's, you know, it's kind of a brute force thing, but mm-hmm. do it, do it, do it, do it. And you just find yourself saying, okay, I got this. I, yeah. know, how to, I know how to handle this. And do you think that same concept applies for presenting in front of people when it's kind of a larger group because I want to go into public speaking yeah. and that's actually the main thing I want to focus on because I feel that was what I learned the most yeah. in your class because that was something that I was always so nervous about right. giving a presentation but you taught really well on how to kind of get over the nerves that come with mm. doing that hmm. so do you think that same kind of concept of recognizing that it's okay to be nervous and that that's yeah. kind of a good thing because it shows that you respect your audience. You think that's true there too? I do. In fact, I just I, I had that exp- just yesterday. I was having that experience. Mm-hmm. I was I was doing a show and I found myself m- more nervous than normal mm-hmm. about it. I'm always nervous to some degree, but I found myself more nervous, and I was sort of trying to process that. Or mm-hmm. and and I just had to remind myself, okay, you care about this. Like this matters today. This is good. You want to be nervous. It means that you're going to have a reservoir of energy mm-hmm. to bring, and so yes, nerves are nerves are good there. I think the other key is, anytime you're presenting, you got to find the thing 
in what you're presenting that you really genuinely care about. Mm. And sometimes you have to work at it because maybe it's a presentation you're forced to give, you know, or somebody asked you to give versus one you really wanted to give. But when you know what you really care about in Mm. any kind of presentation, it becomes so much easier to authentically convey enthusiasm, authentically convey energy. Mm. It actually helps you remember what you're going to say because there's truly something deep in, you know, like that you care about. And so, so that's, what's the thing you care about? And if you find yourself repeatedly in situations presenting on something and there's nothing you care about, Mm. that's a really good indicator that you might not be in the right space in the world. Like if I really don't care about this, why am I doing it? Mm. So part of that career discovery thing. But yes, nerves are okay. And working hard to find the thing that matters to you Mm. and making that the centerpiece of what you're gonna say is so immensely helpful in terms of making this feel like a worthwhile endeavor. Mm. Yeah, and then this one's a little more specific because this is something that I noticed in my first job that you taught in your class about how we should never read the slides when we're up (laughs) giving a presentation. And I have never been in a presentation in like a career sense where people didn't read the slides. So I wanted to ask, how do you teach yourself to present without feeling the comfort of looking back at what you're presenting. <laughs> I know it's specific, but yeah. I think it's a hard thing to learn how to do. It is. Slides are so, I don't know why slides are so comforting to us. Just because mm. I guess, you know, maybe it's, we look at the slides and the slides aren't going to judge us and we're afraid yeah. the audience will judge us. And so we look at the slides uh, and it's so common. In fact, I actually, it almost breaks my heart because I emphasize that so much in my class and then I'll walk by another classroom at here and and I'll look in and somebody's giving a presentation. I'm watching them and they're looking at the slides and I'm like, no, don't give it up so quickly. Why it matters. Okay. I'll say two things. One is eye contact is one of the primary ways that you show somebody that you believe in what you're saying. And they, they get a sense of credibility from you when you're looking at them, which is why I think it's so important. But here's my other thing. The, the more you present and the better you get at it, the more you want to look at the people in the audience mm-hmm. because you're learning how to read them. And you're looking at their eyes and their body language and their faces and you're getting a sense for, are they with me? Are they in this or not? Mm-hmm. And if they're not, then you can start to think about, what do I need to do to get mm-hmm. them back on my main point? So mm-hmm. I actually think you learn to crave a tighter connection with the audience the more you present because you want you really want them to get this and so you're watching them as carefully as they're watching you but you can only do that if you're really connecting with them with your eyes if you're not there's this weird barrier you know you're looking here and they're and and you're not connected with your audience and you just miss the chance chance to, to establish mm. your credibility and to move them. And it's not fun. It's not mm. fun to look at slides that present. It feels like work. Yeah. It doesn't feel like you're bringing people along on a journey that matters to them. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing about presenting that can be so fun if you're able to do mm-hmm. it that way. Mm-hmm. And then going off the slides thing, do you think it's better to have more text or less text <laughs> on a slide? Because this is another thing. Yeah. When I went my first job, I was like, man, people are putting whole novels on their slides. And I just always thought yeah. back to your class where it was like, less is more. I, I, I never want to compete with words on a slide. Mm-hmm. If I'm going to be up presenting, if I'm going to take the time to present, then the focus needs to be on me and what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. It's not a 
like an arrogance thing. It's just like, there's no point presenting if that's not the focus. If we're just going to read stuff, then print out a booklet and give it to people and say, read this, and then we'll come back and talk about it. So putting lots of, if, if you need a lot of text on slides, either it means you don't know your material or this material is much more efficiently conveyed by having somebody read it and then just yeah. do that and eliminate the presentation. Mm. Uh, so I think when, when there's a lot of text on slides, it usually means the person doesn't know what they want to say and so they're just going to read it, mm. in which case they need to do more prep. Or it just means, why are we presenting? Mm. There's no point in doing it this way. There's a better way to do this. Give people the material. Mm. But a presentation, there's, it, you do a presentation because there's something about the physical delivery that enhances the message. Mm. And if you're just reading your slides, I can tell you there's nothing from a physical delivery standpoint that's enhancing anything. Yeah. You're just there as a sideshow. So get out of the way. Yeah. I, so I, that's, I, I feel like I have a strong view on that. But yeah. I, I just think people are missing their opportunities when and they then do that. Kind of presenting the same kind of concept whenever you're speaking on live tv mm. how do you get over the fear of what other people think about you and i think this is something that i deal with similarly in a different way online yeah kind of the response of the people uh, that watch you yeah i've never seen anything online about you personally but <laughs> i imagine you probably get like emails or something from yeah. random people who watch yeah so how do you kind of get over not worrying what people think about you that i i i, I appreciate the question and it's it's hard. Mm. It's hard in two ways, actually. I, I, one, it's hard when people have very uh, mean or unhelpful mm. things to say to you about what you said. Mm. <laughs> it's like you don't even know these people, and they just just sent a fireball email, mm. or a, or worse, on Twitter. Or, oh yeah. You know, I mean, you know what that's like. And I, I feel so sad that people react that way. And, but it is hard because you think, gosh, I can't believe you don't even know me. You say yeah. that about me? And you feel this, you want to respond, which is not helpful. Uh, the other hard part, though, is uh, I, I, when people like what I have to say, mm-hmm. it creates stress, too, because then it, it's like a drug. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, man, I really, wow, they really love that. I'm really... I matter to them. You know, I want to yeah. do that again. I want I want the next hit of that. Put me on. Get me in front of somebody mm-hmm. so I can say something they like. Yeah. And it goes, you know, we started this conversation with the question, what do you tell your 22-year-old self? And my answer was, my really my main answer was, you know, you're loved. You matter because God mm-hmm. chose to love you. And, and the people in your life who love you chose to love you for who you are. And the thing even, you know, so 20 years later, the, the thing I still have to preach to myself is, you don't matter because somebody liked what you did or somebody affirmed it. And you, you don't not matter because somebody said that you're a hack mm-hmm. and you don't know what you're talking about. So it's like the same thing I needed to preach to myself at 22 is yeah. the same thing I have to preach to myself now. Like, why do you matter? Why are you loved? Mm-hmm. And it's not because of the reaction somebody has to a thing you say. That doesn't mean you don't want to serve people well and say true and helpful things. Mm-hmm. But I just, I constantly have to go back to that. If I'm not preaching to myself the true basis of unconditional love, Mm. I'm lost. Whether people like me or don't like me. (laughs) Yeah. No, that's so true. And I was going to end with a Q&A from the viewers, but I feel like we have enough to work with. And so I just wanted to ask one question that's mine personally. Yeah. Um, One big thing that I noticed about you from the start was that you have an emphasis on remembering people's names. Uh 
and not forgetting people's names. And it's such a simple thing, but I found just kind of starting my career, how many people don't think to remember you, you know, the third time that they meet you. And so how do you feel like practically you can learn to remember people's (laughs) names? And then also why is that important to you? Well, it's, uh, thank you for that question, and I appreciate I, I appreciate getting that question, and people ask it to me a lot, and mm. because they think I've got like a trick. Yeah. So, so I don't. Let me start with why, why it matters. So I think it, you know, a name is the first thing that's given to you by somebody that mm. kind of indicates who you are and what you're a part of, and that you matter. And it's the first thing, probably. I don't know, but it seems like one of the first things you learn to recognize as a human being. You hear something enough and it's like, somebody's called me Brian. Somebody's called mm-hmm. me Brian. That, there must be something about that. So the reason I say that is because one of the ways we feel most known is when mm-hmm. somebody knows our name. When somebody comes up to you and says, Brian or Michelle, how are mm-hmm. you doing? You instantly feel like, oh, they remember me. They know mm-hmm. me. And I just think one of our greatest longings in the world is to be known. Yeah. Even though we put up lots of facades, we want to be known. Mm. And so I that insight for me mattered a lot because I want people around me to feel like mm. I care and that they're known. So I try hard to remember names, but it's not because I have a trick or a great memory. I, yeah. It's brute force, and you know this. Mm. When I see somebody, I do the very... When I see somebody in the elevator, I do the very awkward thing, even though I know I've met them before, and I say to them again, can you tell me again your name? Because mm-hmm. I don't remember names every time. Yeah. But it's so it's like this, and you know when I go to class, I shake everyone's hand, mm. everyone's hand, every class, and say their name, knowing I'm, I'm this, I, I may forget it in the midst mm-hmm. of that, and then it's embarrassing for me to do that, but it's that willingness to say it, even though I don't necessarily, not sure I know it, that drills it into my head. Yeah. So don't be afraid. I mean, people want to be known, and and don't be afraid to step out and say, "Tell me your name again." I want to. I want to call you yeah. by name. Yeah, it's so great. Yeah. Um, I think that is everything sure. that we're going to talk about today. But thank yeah. you so much for being on. I will have both of our information in the show notes down, not down below. It will be in the description. Um, but yeah, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure, Michelle. Thank you for having me on. And that is it for today's episode. I really hope you guys enjoyed it. I really hope this one had practical advice and tangible takeaways that you could go away with that was kind of the main reason why I did this one I definitely want to keep a balance in this podcast between making things conversational and lighthearted, but then also having things that are maybe a little more applicable whenever you're actually trying to do certain things in your career or your life or your personal life whatever that may be so I hope this was that for you. Let me know what you think. Again, don't forget to write a review if you guys feel inclined to. I really love it. Again, this is something that I'm still figuring out. So I love hearing from you guys and I will see you guys in my next episode. Bye, friends.